Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about flow states, peak experiences, lessons around fear, injury, and death, and everything in between. In this episode, James Farr returns to continue where we left off in episode 6. James is a mountain guide and outdoor educator based in Kenya and is someone who also has a deep passion for exploring how and why spending time outdoors pursuing adventure is so transformative. In episode 6, we, we chatted about James's background and upbringing in, in Africa. In this episode, we really go deep into to transformation. We chat about deeply spiritual and ineffable experiences that occur in the outdoors and the challenge of reconciling these experiences into a belief system. For James, it was fitting this into Christianity. For me, it was trying to reconcile it with atheism. We also chat about privilege and adventure sports, mountain culture in Africa versus North America, and how fear and suffering so often lead to transformative experiences. I really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. Here's our episode with James Farr. Awesome. I'm here with round two with James Farr. James, how you doing? Did you post the first one? I did post the first one. Oh, shit. This is officially <laughs> round two. I didn't even go to listen. My bad. Okay. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Great. Oh, you're still in Nairobi or you're slightly outside of it? You said in the bush. A bit more. No, so I'm back. I'm home now, um, which right now is six hours north of Nairobi, sort of in the kind of what's the frontier district of Kenya um, at the conservancy that I, I work with. Gotcha. And when yeah. we, I believe it was September when we last spoke, it's um, there's been like a marked change in the seasons in, in BC. I imagine in, in Kenya, it's so close to the mm. equator, there's, there's less of a change, is there? Yeah, there's not a lot. It's getting drier and hotter though. So we're moving, we're moving into, we should have, we should have experienced the, uh, the last month or two, a lot more rain, um, which is a little, it's a little d- disturbing. <laughs> um, but you know, like Kenya is one of those countries that is really at the, the front line of climate change in terms of how it's going to affect, you know, the, the general population. And so we're right on the edge of that. So we're moving into a long, what might be a long, hard dry season yeah mm-hmm. what is the like the crop cycle usually in 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 that area the crop cycle i guess it depends I, on not, like i haven't been here long enough to yeah. really know it um yeah. when they plant when they i mean right now right i guess right now they're um one of vuna so they're picking all their corn and they're like i don't even you know they put it in those machines i'm not really sure what they're doing with it um but yeah, it's fun. I mean, I've been here about a whole year now. And so I've been able to like watch my first round through all the seasons here and like, you know, how, how people's lifestyles change and the different things. And so that's exciting, but you know, cool. another year or two through all, it'll be cool to, to just witness that. Awesome. Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, are you, are y'all as affected by these wildfires? Yeah. Like in California and on the rest of the West Coast? 
Yeah, it, it was it was pretty bad in, in British Columbia over the summer. We yeah, we we got hit with both of those heat domes. One in 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 May, another one in in June, July. We had um, yeah, the, a town um, about two hours from me had got completely destroyed by by a wildfire. Um, wow. So it was yeah, it was it was a it was a really bad summer for, for wildfires, and then it's completely turned around in that air like um, where like in a an atmospheric river right now and so a town pretty close uh this town called hope is just is now uh completely cut off on like three highways had landslides around it it's completely without power oh my gosh there's been like a hundred millimeters a day for like three days now wow that's hardcore it is it is hardcore kind of like apocalyptic that's like these floods in germany that's wild yeah yeah it's, it's so hard to tell like i mean Yes, it's like it's very clear where does it get like is getting more extreme, um, but I I also wonder if like these events did still happen. They're just happening at a a lot more frequent like basis. So. Yeah, and and we're primed for them differently. Like they're being exactly the priming them. side is what I'm thinking. About. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Which I think is valuable actually because I think what it I think potentially even the things that maybe used to happen anyways, we now, we see them in a broader context and they're being framed for us, you know, in a way that hopefully will, you know, I mean, <laughs> like anxiety has a purpose, you know, um, and climate anxiety, it may be the only thing that saves us in the, at the, in the end, you know. Let's hope so. I mean, it's, um, yeah, there's also a lot of resistance uh, I, I, I'm just thinking with the like the the summit talks uh, that have been happening over the last month. How uh, I think India committed to carbon neutral by 2070, China by 2060. It's still like if that's the the very best they can do, that's it's yeah. barely fast enough. Kind of, yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you know this is a whole other conversation, but I think it. But I think it's relevant, you know, to because it's a whole, you know, involved in this whole question of like, why do we go outside and why does that restore us? Um, you know, and, and my work right now is, is uh, I'm working for a conservancy, um, which is, you know, in a part of the world where it's very, very hard. It's not like in the United States where we've had these national parks that, you know, have been established for some of them 100 years. Um, and so, you know, so the, those wilderness areas in terms of being like protected land are quite stable, whether or not, you know, the ecosystems are surviving. But here it's like, you know, there's all this other stuff that's getting, you know, that makes it very challenged to set aside land and protect it because you also have just kind of the, the, the roiling dynamics of a developing country that's on the frontier of, you know, um, a very conflict prone part of Africa, you know, just kind of a chaotic part of the continent. With Ethiopia and Somalia and Sudan are all right or you know, directly north of us, um, but and so it so it can be quite and it's quite so it's quite quite daunting and sometimes it feels quite hopeless. But what I am learning here is that the only way to like press forward in the situation is to like it's just faith, man, because it's like it does not look good. <laughs> the trajectory does not look good, and. I find that here I have to practice and I've learned a lot from the people I work with here. You have to practice imagining beautiful futures, you know, like if, because if we don't do that, it's, 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 
you know, there's no way it'll work out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. The, the, uh, a term I heard some refer to is, is radical hope and, and maintaining hope, even though you have contemplated what the odds are, because it is, if you, if you don't maintain that hope, it's, it's very easy to fall into hopelessness. Anyway, so in, in our last, um, conversation we got we got cut up just as we got into the the, the juicy stuff so that's kind of what i wanted to to lean into and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in, in that um part of why i started this this project is this like deeply intuitive feeling that um that uh, that like spending time outdoors gives us the opportunity pr- provides the space for transformation for for that inspiration, healing, and, and, and connection, and that it's possible to develop a practice around that. Um, and yeah, I'd love to spend this time digging into what your experience in that space has been. Around transformation and hope? Y- using, like, uh, spending your time outdoors or, no, finding transformation inspiration healing connection from the time that you've spent outdoors yeah well it almost you know it almost takes me directly to that post that you that you brought up um because i think in in that piece of writing i was contemplating like when when was the earliest time i started articulating the fact that and so in that sense, realizing the fact that, you know, nature and kind of the, the uncivilized world uh, was the most restorative thing in my life. And, I, and that, was in, that was in high school. I, already, I was realizing that, you know, I was starting to have experiences where I was going off on my own. In these, uh, and, and of course, it had always been in my life. I've always been outside in Kenya. It's just part of how I grew up. But it took until I was in high school, and then you're starting to get wrapped up in, you know, all of that part of kind of society, societal life, um, and the expectations and the stories and the you know identities and whatever. And then all of a sudden, it was like I would dive back into nature, and it was like taking this, you know, this deep breath. Um, and those early experiences were, when I first was realizing that, were just really um, revelatory. Um, maybe can I can I tell one of those stories now, just like as an example? Please, please. Yeah. I, so I mean, I think the I had a few. You know, when I was the thing is in in Kenya, you don't a lot of people aren't going out and doing like a, a kind of outdoor adventures in the Western sense in high school because you don't you can't drive. So you're 18 and so just like if you grew up in the city you don't really leave the city unless it's facilitated and but I started doing that with a few of my friends we just started kind of in, which here was a little bit countercultural. we would like go to a wildlife game park uh, and go backpacking you know like the few that you were allowed to walk in um, outside of a car we would just like take our backpacks and we just go trekking across the savannah you know it was, <laughs> it was pretty rad um, way to do it you know and you're running into like you know crazy wildlife and um but uh, so I went and did Mount Kenya. I climbed Mount Kenya when I was like 16. And Mount Kenya is just a really powerful presence of a mountain. Uh, it's a very spiritual place. It's very, has like a lot of history and, 
yeah, um, a lot of heritage kind of in it. And so I went for the first time and the first time you hike, most people don't, don't actually summit the mountain because the, the, the peaks are, are technical, quite, quite serious technical rock climbs. Um, and so most people kind of hike to us like a subsidiary peak, which I did for the first time. And I remember looking over and seeing this enormous massif um, to, to the south and being like, wait a minute, we're, we're not at the top? Like, like, who goes up there? You know, like, that's crazy, that's wild. Um, and so I decided right then, I was like, well, you know what? I had barely started climbing like at a gym. And I was like, no, that's, that's my goal. Um, and so for the next couple of years, I kind of prepared for that. And in my last year of secondary school, high school, uh, me and a buddy went for it with a, a climbing guide. Um, and we'd started climbing outside and we were sport climbers and, you know, done it, fiddled around a little bit, but nothing like this. I'd never been on a multi-pitch climb before. And this is like 24 pitches of like, you know, high altitude alpine rock climbing. Um, and so, so, the, and so we just jumped into it. And I, I remember saying that to our guide as we were hiking across the glacier to get to the base of the climb, being like, oh no, we, we, I've never done a multi-pitch before. And he just kind of stopped in his tracks and looked at us and he's like, oh my Lord. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we, we had this epic adventure and we it took us a really long time, took us the whole day to climb the route. Uh, and so we kind of got caught in the weather that afternoon and we ended up spending the night on the top 17,000 feet above sea level, um, you know, on these twin spires and what's so, and then waking up the next morning to the, to, to the sunrise and what's so special about some of these mountains in East Africa um, is that because they are volcanoes, there is nothing else around them. You know, they're not in a range. So you have this sort of 360 degree vista um, horizon that you're just looking down at. And you can see Kilimanjaro in the far distance, if it's clear. Um, and it was quite, it was, it was a totally profound experience that like that sunrise, you know, and I think that was the moment I, I knew I was like, well, at the time, my only avenue for it that I knew of was climbing and like these kind of sports activities. I was like, this is that experience I'm after. Um, so it, it's funny, as you share that, I, I think I, um, like I, 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 the first experience I had like that was probably, it, it was in Nepal in, um, uh, doing the, the, the base camp route and it took me a, a, a long time to reconcile exactly what it was i was like whoa that was like a really like intense feeling of connection um like what was that you know i i and on our last conversation you shared you, you come from a, a missionary family um how, how did you reconcile that experience when it, when it mm. happened yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, the language I had around those kinds of experiences at the time was, was uh, God, you know, um, and specifically sort of the, you know, I mean, the, again, the, the language of it was, was, was Judeo-Christian as so it was father God and it was masculine and all, but, 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 you know, I'd had, I'd associated that and built that language on all these kind of spiritual religious experiences I'd had grow, growing up in, you know, in worship settings or, in, you know, just, you know, you know, religion, religious communities can be very profound, you know, like you do a lot of soul work for real, you know, in those communities, whether or not like 
there's this, you know, what I would kind of think of now as sort of obstructive language to it. Um, but so I had a lot of those experiences and then I started having these experiences outside. And so the, my first way of describing it was like, oh, I was like, oh man, I really, I think I really connect with God out here, you know, or I really, um, um, you know, this is church for me or, or whatever it is. Um, but the, but the experiences, like you said, were, were so much bigger and so different and so unique um, and, and so sort of ineffable that really you come away from those experiences and your first reaction is, what was that? <laughs> you know, like, wow, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, like, a, uh, an element of, like, disorientation around that like like part of you has been kind of shaken up and re rearranged from something mm -hmm. like that you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah and you said you said that you did not have a religious upbringing right yeah yeah um, so how you built your like how you first had those experiences and how you built your language around them yeah this is, this is funny so i um i uh didn't have any religion growing up but i i was aware of it and i was always like curious about it. I was like what is that thing uh and then in my my freshman year of university i got uh talking to uh like one of the one of the the youth church you know like those i'm not sure if i'm sure mm -hmm. did, did you did you grow up in how much time did you spend in the u.s like growing up or through like you familiar with that like pentecostal youth church vibe yeah, yeah, you know, I'm very, very familiar with like American religious culture for sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. So I, it was somewhere in New Zealand, like the, like it, it was my first experience with like, uh, uh, I, I only ever knew like, um, I didn't know like that that kind of boring like church vibe, uh, even though I'd never been to church. And and then I was like, hey, this dude's like super cool, and he like invited me to come to church. I was like, yeah, I, I like I can totally get down with that. And yeah. um, I, I went to church in freshman year and uh. And it was the most wild experience in that um, as soon as I walked through the door and it was like worship with a rock band, um, there was this feeling of like, um, like there was this like a part of me that had been empty my entire life and it just suddenly been like, been filled up. And I just, like, it, it was just this deep, like deep spiritual experience. And I, I spent the, f the next kind of year and a half exploring Christianity before eventually moving away, just like it was at the time New Zealand was legalizing gay marriage. So there's a lot of like tension of me being like, hang on, like trying to reconcile these deeply like spiritual experiences I had from it with like, I'm not sure I kind of vibe with these beliefs, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it was that tension that, that made me move away. Uh, and then that was, that must've been like 2013. And then I, w I was in Nepal 2015 where I had that experience in the mountains, but it was funny. I, um, at the time I still reconciled that as a, I mean, as like a non, as like a case against God. Like, I think I was still an, an, an atheist at that point in that I remember having a conversation with a, a Christian after that being like, um, the reason I don't believe in God is because I can experience this in the mountains. Not, not as a, like a hang on, these two things uh, work, uh, work together here. And it, uh, honestly, it wasn't until I was like, like a very, very rational human. So I just couldn't compute it. Um, and it, it actually wasn't until I started experimenting with psychedelics that I actually got this like 
visceral sense of something more than rational yeah 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 and then since then it's it's been like a constant like exploration outside of a denomination it's been like viewing it as like these are modalities to help access inspiration healing and 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 Mm. connection yeah yeah i mean i i um i mirror a lot of that story in some ways um it, but I think, yeah, I, I've that that language of modalities to access these, you know, these experiences, this kind of healing, is is really good. Um, I think I I think of it, I think of the, hmm, you know, the sort of the Buddhist illustration of um, the the. Well, I've heard I've heard it I've heard the Dalai Lama once said to somebody who like came to him, who was, a, who, who was kind of maybe coming from a Christian background and said, um, you know, how do I, you know, how can I become a Buddhist? And like, you know, I, I want to become a good Buddhist. And, and he replied to them, he said, you shouldn't like, don't become a Buddhist. He's like, you know, he's, he's like, use, use the structures, use the tools, the methodologies that are like most deeply embedded in you and have been given to you by this tradition. And he, just, he said, he said, don't become a Buddhist, become a better Christian. Um, which I thought was really interesting because then there's this, there's this parable of the Buddha where, you know, he has even this example of, he says, you know, if you're looking for water, you don't dig six wells, one foot deep, you know, you dig one well, six feet deep or however far you have to go to find the water. Um, which is something saying, saying something to the commitment of a practice and that you definitely like will, will as you develop skill with a practice, any kind of spiritual practice or otherwise you will taste more and more of that you know, that truth, the flow, you know, whatever you want to call it, but also, but then, but then the only danger is that you get so far down that well, that you don't realize that there are other places you can find water, you know, it's just a matter of digging. Yeah. So I think, that, yeah. And, yeah. and I, and, and I, I feel this is my, my Christian friends a lot. And that is like a very much a, like a, to the point of dogma and that there's like, this is the only well and, and right. uh, yeah. And yeah, the and if you just moved to my well, it would be 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 so much um, richer. But, <laughs> but I, um, right, but of course they are tasting water, and that's important too. Is right, like yeah. yeah, the water must be sweet down there, you know, and it's very profound. Mm. You know, it's just kind of get lost in it. Yeah, yeah. John John Viveki is this this cognitive scientist, cognitive philosopher, and he and he talks about building an an ecology of of practice uh, um, yeah. to access these states. And, and he frames it, he's got this like 50 hour lecture series called the uh, awakening from the meaning crisis. And he maps like um, every, like he, I think it's called like deep history where you go like 3000 years back, like all the way to like the axial revolution of, of, of the Buddha and, and, and Moses and, and like creates this one thread of history. And he goes like through, through Plato, like, um, like through Aristotle, through Thomas of Aquinas, um, Pascal, Descartes, all, all these like different like philosophers um, to, to create this narrative of, of how um, we've reached this this time um, in history where um, the largest demographic is the nuns, the, the uh, non-religious but non-atheist. Mm. Um, and it's, it's telling in that... Um, like astrology is more popular than ever. There's like all these weird, um, like um, 
like all this like we're like manifesting more popular than ever like you're seeing all these like strange kind of spiritual modalities or strange i shouldn't put that label on it but like different like spiritual modalities that are just coming into norm uh which which i think reflects the fact that um uh, or at least a lot of people make the comment that like in the 90s this whole like atheist movement like with sam harris and chris hitchens and all those people came out um and it, it, it's kind of created a void as such where, where people like need some belief system in order to find deeper meaning mm-hmm. yeah yeah because i think well i think the issue is you you have to you both have to commit to your practice and really and really dig in, but you also have to know that it's a practice, right? You have to know that it's not the real thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's the finger pointing at the moon. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I think the, the, out, the world of outdoor recreation is one of those new modalities. Um, Absolutely, you know, and and but what is and and when when a lot of these sports were first beginning, I think they were really like truly revelatory and courageous spiritual endeavors, as well as everything else. Because not only were you going and doing these things that no one had ever done before, you also were again they were they were introducing new modes of experience and 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 modes of connection with you know uh, reality that were quite countercultural, you know, <laughs> for those cultures, right? And this was interesting too. There's all these dynamics of like, you know, what we're, we're really, I think, predominantly talking about white Western culture and the trajectory it's been on. Um, because I think a lot of the traits of an imperial culture, a like a dominant culture is that you become a little bit more and more and more, I should say less and less and less self-aware um, and, and I think less aware of the system you're baked into. And so, and there's not a lot. And I think for like white, white men of a certain class, the men, the people who started most of these sports, as we know them today, um, you know, you get to the point where all of your needs are met in your life, you know, um, in a simple sense. And so what is the, then it's so fascinating that the thing that we then decided to do is, well, our life, we finally like figured it out so that a, a very small, you know, proportion of humanity right at the top can live, can like basically live a good life. Like you don't have to really worry about anything. You have all your needs met. You can do whatever you want. You have all these resources. And then what's the first thing we do as soon as we get to that point is people start going off and climbing fucking mountains, right? And like, uh, which I just think says a, a lot about the, the human experience is that like, it is nice to have a nice life, but that is, you know, a, a very incomplete portrait of like what a meaningful life is and what, what we're supposed to be here for. Yeah. Yeah. In that, are you, 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 are you pointing to like the, like the amount of privilege that all of these sports sit on top of? Like you can't even think about playing in these experiences until all your other needs is met. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think, I mean, I think there's two sides to it. Cause I think the really countercultural part of the, of these sports came more from the, in, 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 I think, well, let's say like rock climbing in the United States came as a dropping out thing, right? Like very much in that culture of in the sixties, you know, what, what was Timothy Leary's thing? Um, is it tune in, turn on, drop out? Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Um, and I think that that was a symptom of that, you know, as people who are, who are awakening just enough to realize that the system they're in is 
you know, really, really hollow. <laughs> it, but, but your first instinct is to just, you know, is just to, to leave it behind and reject that. And I think that, I think that that's a totally valid choice. Um, I also think that like, as our culture is maturing, we're realizing that it's also, it, 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 it does take a lot of privilege and it is a symptom of privilege to choose to do that. And that there probably are ways to integrate these practices into our life where we don't fully drop out of society, you know, and we like play the part that we need to play. Um, I think that's, that's something I think about a lot because I, cause I think the, the, I dove into like climbing culture in the United States when I went to college and it just totally absorbed me for like four years, all through, all through college. And I was still having these experiences where, you know, um, it would reach, you know, very powerful kind of spiritual places, but it also more and more, you know, cl like climbing, like many of our sports now are becoming institutionalized and they're becoming systematized and categorized and made very convenient. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, that's, that's the same as any other kind of institution or, or belief set you're given is like the more streamlined it is for you, the maybe the less actual exploring of your inner world you're going to end up doing. It becomes much more about the ego and much more about comparison with other people and much more about you know, expectations and, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we've covered a, a, a lot here. Um, <laughs> so something that just, that, uh, stands out to me about, about what you just said is, um, like in, in that maturity phase, or let's just say rock climbing, how, like, as it becomes more institutionalized, there's like a, um, that like exploratory, uh portion that like uncertainty portion is like starting to be lost a little which means that that like transformative part is starting to be lost as well yeah right because it's get, when it gets a little bit less wild a little bit less unpredictable then you're not you know you're not taking yourself to the edge in quite the same way it can feel yeah. like it isn't so and again it's more accessible and like that's that's awesome because not the truth is like not everybody you know, I think everybody lives at one of their edges, but there's a lot of people who like, they don't want their edge to be taking massive risks in the mountains, <laughs> you know, even if it is like a potentially very fruitful endeavor. <laughs> yeah, I, lo I love the term, like, from the edge, taking yourself to, to your edge. So like in, um, like, that edge being the edge of the comfort zone, uh, the edge of, like, uh, the edge of uh, what am I saying in terms of like the the risk that is available here we have we haven't we've kind of like made an assumption on the how this risk element is key to transformation here or whether is it the risk element or is it just yeah. the being exposing yourself to, to nature well that's what I mean that's what risk is right it's just like exposure to potential consequences um yeah and in different parts of your life. I think, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the directions we could go with this conversation that is quite fascinating to me is, is the, is the, the question of, you know, basically privilege and power, but, you know, in a more of our current historical moment, like black culture, white culture, you know, and like the certain, um, I think, you know, the certain kinds of weight and different kinds of 
baggage that those different experiences come with and then therefore what what kinds of practices are we most drawn to um and but but i think it but i think it's also like so i've done a lot of thinking about that in terms of like my culture is you know kind of a wasp family from the united states who moves to kenya because in kenya like you know it's very 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 distinct even more in the united states more than in the united states that up until very recently wazungu white people did these things it is not a thing that kenyans did um you know going rock climbing going mountain biking going hiking even right um because you know and, and so just really forces that question of like why you know why would you know why would a guy out here in Olmoran, you know want to like first of all be able to invest in the equipment required for such a thing but then want to go and you know potentially put his life on the line or his or his livelihood on the line or his body you know when like you know just getting just kind of keeping his family alive and sending his kids to school is like you know absorbs all of that emotional energy you know he, he, they don't it's very hard to have the space but i think what's really fascinating is that like that is beginning to change and as these concepts are have been introduced here i think it will a I think as like a lot of Kenyans come into the middle class suddenly they do have that space and what's so fascinating again is like as soon as as soon as you have this Kenyan middle class culture what is the first thing they start doing they start going back outside right they start leaving the city again they start having adventures like Im immediately um because we start to we crave that you know and even and it's really it's really fascinating I um I actually got a got to write a story for climbing magazine a few months back um uh, about a year ago, actually, about these Samburu Moran, which are like these like proper, you know, pastoralist warriors, these guys who, you know, they're my age, but they're like, they're, they're very much, you know, in, in, steeped in that culture, who were introduced to climbing because they live in this unbelievable landscape of, of enormous big walls. Um, of just like stunning, stunning rock everywhere. <laughs> and so there were some climbers who'd been visiting there for a long time. Eventually, you know, there were just these guys, these 25 year old guys. And in many ways, like to be a Moran, to be a warrior of that age is very much like leisure life, you know? And a lot of like pastoralist culture when it's thriving is a very, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like hunter gatherer, you know, they only work when they have to, because like, you know, everything is very plentiful. You know, traditionally, it's not that way anymore um, for a number of reasons. But there are still elements of that. Like you meet a Samburu Moran, a guy who's 25, and he's just like, he's in the prime of his life. You know, he like has all the street cred. He mostly like hangs around, you know, but, you know, and partly because it's very patriarchal. So all that to say, it's it, there's an interesting parallel in terms of where they are in life to why they would be attracted to this thing that they're seeing people do that's like, you know, objectively quite pointless. Um, <laughs> you know, but they, but they look at it and they're like, hmm, you know, could I do that, right? Because then they, and then they start having these experiences and now we've got a whole really neat cohort of like properly, uh, you know, like very pastoralist traditional Kenyan men who are like stoked rock climbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's... What comes up when I, I think of that is uh, there, there's this documentary on Netflix called Mountain, and it's it's based on um, a book by Mountains of the Mind by Rob McFarlane. And there's a line in it saying, 
Into the mountains we go in headlong pursuit of peril, the testing ground in which the self is best illuminated. Mm. And there's a very, like, it, it very much is a testing ground. Like, you, you look at a mountain and it's like, let's, let, let's, see, like, let's prove myself on this. You know, I can see why a warrior would be drawn to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's a lot of parallels with warrior culture. I mean, I think, again, like, I think, I think risk is a really fascinating thing because to take a risk, you in, inherently, you, you have to be a little bit reckless. Like that's, that's part of it is, is you, you have to be drawn to it in a way that is not fully rational. Um, which again, like that, you know, that throws into harsh relief what are, what we think rational means in the first place. But you know, and, and the, the nature of why those experiences are profound is that because you are giving up control to a certain degree. If you don't give up control, you won't have that profound experience in the same way. And so what the way we learn through those experiences is that shit goes wrong, basically. You know, like it, it's, this, it's this kind of this cycle of like, you feel really bold you know, you're, you're crushing it, it's awesome. And you have that first feeling of why, wow, this is so cool. And then something goes wrong and you go through this whole cycle of fear, shame, regret, you know, whatever. And then, and then, and then eventually it heals. And then somehow, even though you've gone through that, that experience, that journey was so profound that you get into another situation where you're like, this is reckless, you know, or like, this is, I, this is bigger than I've ever done before. I'm, I'm going to let go of control again. And then you jump back into it over and over and over again. That's the whole cycle. <laughs> But I think what's important about that is that it breaks you down. And so if you do keep doing it and, the, and, it's, and it's something that you observe in a lot of people who get really, really good at what they do, the best, you know, the geniuses, the best, best people in their craft often develop a real like deep kind of humility and, you know, presentness and kind of there's a Zen quality to these people that you meet. It's very different than someone who's like really good at what they do, but also like very identified with that. And it hasn't failed them yet right or hasn't taken something from them yet or whatever it is but if you know you meet these you know for me i just think of like you know alpinists really old guys who've been in the mountain women who've been in the mountains for a really really long time um and they just have no ego mm. or they have like they have enough of an ego to still have fun in the mountains but but you know they don't care if they win or lose and it's really a beautiful thing to be around Absolutely. I, uh, I, the line I, that comes to mind is there's, there's old mountaineers, there's bold mountaineers, but there's no old and bold mountaineers. And there, there's this balance of like, one, like part of being in the outdoors is like surrendering to, to the elements. Like it, and, and it, especially when you go into the Alpine, just the amount of factors like that, like uh, the amount of unknowns or things out of your control, just, just exponentially grows. Um, and so there's this like beautiful balance between one, making sure everything that is within your control is absolutely dialed and making those mm. like de de decisions on um, like how much risk you're willing to expose yourself while at the same time, like surrendering to that. Mm. There's a, um, 
a dude I, I I spoke to um it's probably episode two of this podcast Tyson Adams talked about every time he goes climbing he he tries to like consciously uh make peace with his own death um and I and I think that there's like uh like one of the the ways in which spending time outdoors is so transformative is that uh, or, or at least these high risk sports are so transformative is that it like in, in some ways bringing you closer to considering your own death is one of the best ways to really live life to the fullest. Mm. Mm. They, like they, they talk about how, how Western culture is, um, is very like we've become very, very scared of death and we do everything to yeah. to avoid and we don't talk about it um yeah and it's in in some ways that's perhaps like one of the edges that leads to transformation right. well i think i think that's that's the that's the 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 sharp edge of what i was talking about earlier in terms of sort of why why do cultures that reach a you know a a, a kind of a critical mass of comfort you know, immediately start trying to invert that in, you know, in personal experience. Um, and I think, and I think that, I think it is fundamentally a question about death in the, the presentness of the presentness of the, I mean, the presentness of suffering and death. Um, and I think suffering is another word that we don't, we don't contemplate enough or use enough in the United States or in sort of the Western world. Um, because we've because there's such an extreme spectrum of suffering in the world that we, you know we joke and we call things you know things we get upset about uh we call them you know first world problems but they're suffering you know spiritually speaking that's it's what it is it's just all it's just this giant spectrum and so what's been quite fascinating about being someone who loved these kind of activities and came you know came very much from again this 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 very rarefied culture where all of my needs were met pretty much all the time. Um, as much as I grew up in Africa and like was so blessed to grow up in Africa because it provided this incredible contrast, you know, <laughs> all the time. Um, and I think is probably the reason I will always have at least one foot here in Africa is just because it is, it is such a profound lesson. And there's so many stages to it that I can't even, I can't fathom you know, the kind of person I will be able to evolve to be if I continue to engage with this culture that is so, in some ways, just polar opposite, right? In terms of like, it's almost like a yin to a yang in many ways um, to like white Western male culture, um, imperial culture, you know, because it's everything that we're not. It's, 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 you know, it's like deeply intuitive and deeply grounded and in many, and very like raw and almost like ferocious, right? Like in one sense, wild, right? And in the other sense, like totally idyllic, you know, idyllic in a way that we can't even come up with, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, anthropologists and evolutionary anthropologists will talk about, they've done these experiments to see like what landscape does like the human brain respond to the most positively. And there's obviously a lot of different ones that are really idyllic and green and bucolic, but the, the one that consistently wins out is essentially the African savanna, kind of like these rolling open hills of kind of like green gold grass with these like, where you can so, so you can see everything, 
right? So there's, it's, it's, it's much easier to gauge threat. Um, you can also see all of your resources. You can see that there's, a, there's, there's water way over there. It could be miles and miles and miles away, but you can see it. And then there's, you know, there's, there's a shady glen over here that you can go and rest in. There's a tall hill that you can go and survey the, you know, so it's just this like feeling of like real integration into this wide open space that you are just totally a part of and is not, it can become very scary, right? But also like there's safety in numbers, right? So if even if, if you are a prey, if you're a prey species, you know, you still have a pretty good life because most of the time you're wandering around in a herd of 300, 400, or more or 10 or thousands and thousands of animals. And so, yeah, the, you know, the lions come and the cheetahs come, but they're just going to take out one or two of you. And it's like, it's a bummer, but you know, there's, it's again, it's so much more of a collective consciousness, these herds of animals and these kinds of creatures. So all that to say, like, I just think there's a lot, it was, it's been a real privilege to be able to traverse those cultures in my life. Um, and I, I thought of someone earlier that I think is, is, I'd like to bring up in this conversation because he, you know, it's sort of like, I think one, one of the things that our culture does not do very well is we like to take credit for things that like, you know, we really like, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't teach it. We didn't discover that we didn't teach, we were taught that, you know, and um, there's a, a man I've worked with here in Kenya um, who's an, an, it's actually a Knowles instructor. Are you familiar with Knowles? Yeah. Um, and his name, his name is James Kagambi and he's a Kenyan man. And he's now, he's now he's 60. Um, but he's worked for Knowles at a certain point. I don't know if this is still true. He had like the most field weeks of any Knowles instructor in history. Um, so like, he's a true legend in that community. Um, and, you know, has worked for 30, I think 30 plus years there. And so I was introduced to him when I went and did my student Knowles course Someone, someone said, oh, you're from Kenya. Oh, you've got to meet, oh my gosh, KG is what they call him. You've got to, you got to meet KG. I'll connect you with him. And that just began this whole journey of friendship that has really like formed who I am and what I do here in Kenya because he started just giving me these opportunities because there weren't many people who were interested in that in Kenya. Um, just helping me arrange these expeditions and help me shoot this film. And then I got to go and work. I've now done a few trips with him, but I got to go and do this amazing course on Kilimanjaro um, a couple of years ago where we were training technically I was interning for Knowles I wasn't even like fully an instructor um, but it's you know but it's Africa so you're winging everything um, and it we went basically Kilimanjaro is known for this big don't you know this big crater um, formation that people climb to the top of which is uh, there are proper climbs on it but for the most part you can just hike to the top um, and so it's a pretty you know it's still an experience but it's a relatively you know accessible mountain and experience but there's another peak on the mountain that's also tremendous it's all you know nearly as tall as Mount Kenya and is this very dramatic jagged you know striking intimidating massif and it's called Mawenzi and so it's been closed this peak has been closed for several decades actually, because um, there were so many fatalities, so many climbing accidents on these because it's very, very loose. It's very, very old, old, old volcanic rock. And so it's quite, it's quite treacherous. Yeah, so we ran this course on this mountain where we were basically training the Kilimanjaro rescue team, those rangers um, to do, basically learn basic alpine guiding and rescue skills. Um, 
So it was very cool. And it was a very, very cool experience for me because it was, you know, a very, a very um, serious mountain experience. And it's a very serious climb. Um, and, and it was also a completely like embedded, immersive African experience. I was the only, I was the only Mzungu there. Um, it was a crew of Tanzanian men and two Kenyan instructors and myself. And so just to have that, which is just so, you know, you, just, you don't get a lot of opportunities like that to see what does, what does this, what is this experience like for a totally different culture, you know, with like, with like generally a very different set of priorities. Um, and what does it feel like for them? What does it feel like for me? And what, what, what do I learn from this way of being in the mountains? Um, and this, and this guy KG is just an amazing, you know, he, he, he's such an inspiring figure because he simultaneously is like, you know, a, 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 a really properly Kenyan man, you know, and in so many ways. And yet he's also this, this kind of guru of the mountains. Um, and is again, one of these characters that is incredibly competent, you know, and he's, he's was 60 years old leading up through scary, crumbly ice shoots, you know, at like, you know, nearly 18,000 feet, <laughs> you know, and it just, just completely cool collected head and how, you know, and it has enough of a, still that kind of intensity, that fire in him that he wants to do that stuff. But at the same time, is just an amazing facilitator and instructor because he really can drop his ego completely um, and just be whatever somebody else needs him to be. Um, yeah, so there's been figures like that in my life that have been really, you know, again, people who've held the space in a different way. So it's not, you know, because there's also people you can go into the mountains with or go do any of these things with that are really stoking your ego and are really pushing you to, you know, be be better than everybody else. And, uh, you know, yeah, and there's a place for that too, of course, but um, yeah, I don't know how you how you hear that, what, 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 does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, that, that, that resonates a lot in, in terms of one, um, like I, I think about like some of the, the, the lessons and wisdom of uh, mountaineering or the outdoors, like, uh, like has to be or, or is most effectively transferred through mentors. So I, I love hearing those stories of like, um, mm. like mentors in, in, in people's lives um i'm what's going through my mind is, is trying to like pull these threads together a little bit within <laughs> the within the the frame of like uh spending this time outdoors for like developing a practice of it for transformation Yeah, and the thing that that it, you know immediately now comes to mind when you say that is related to this thread of uh, you know fear and death, um, and and the and the role of failure, you know, and danger and making mistakes, and that you know that it is that part of the practice that I think makes it effective um, is that if you're doing it right, you become wiser. 
because you consistently are doing it wrong. Um, and that there, there are real consequences to it. And I think that that's, I think that's kind of, yeah, I guess that's something that's important about any practice is that there are, there's something at stake, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious if you have a memory of the most scared you've ever been in the mountains. Well, <laughs> I mean, I have a lot, <laughs> um, uh, as I think probably most, yeah, most folks do. Uh, but I, yeah, and some of that too is I, I, you know, I've I had a very reckless phase, and so I, um, I put myself into situations, and it's it's been occasionally when I've put myself into a situation, but it's also been situations where I have put other people through my decisions have put other people into a situation. So I, I remember a climb embarking on a, a, a kind of epic bush climb, um, actually in this area where these Samburu guys climb on this this very, you know, really enormous wall, um, probably 1500, close to 2000 feet. Um, and I had actually never climbed the main face of this wall and only knew, you know, only knew it from guidebooks. I knew a few people had done routes on this, but it, you know, it's, it's a proper, like, you know, it's a real jungle climb. Um, and there's no, you know, there's, there's no gear anywhere. There's nothing, there's no bolts. Um, and I decided, yeah, that would be fun. But I decided to take my, my partner at the time who was a much, much newer climber um, and could follow stuff, but certainly would, you know, was not a, was not a, a strong trad leader and took her onto this climb and ended up realizing that this climb was, was exceptionally dangerous. Um, and had just very, very, very little pro, very exposed, you know, basically like running out entire pitches on like kind of thin, scary, exposed slab climbing. Um, <laughs> and, and at one point, uh, reached a, 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 ran my rope all the way out on this, again, this long slab. And I had maybe, maybe one piece of gear in, you know, 120 feet below me. How long and, is the rope? Well, it's a, so 60, 70, 70 meter rope. So it's like 220 feet almost. Yeah, so I basically had like a piece of gear in on it. And so, so, you know, any fall is, is catastrophic, um, if, if and likely fatal, uh, in, in what climbers, you know, you call them the no fall zone, right? It's like, you're, you're just constantly making that adjustment. Like, can I fall? Can I not fall? And you climb differently depending on what kind of situation you're in. And, uh, and I, yeah, I ran my rope all the way out and I started hearing, you know, 10 meters, five meters, two meters right now I'm looking I'm scanning this wall for any any kind of protection whatsoever let alone like I've given up on like you know a nice sound three-point anchor but I'm just looking at anything can I put a nut in somewhere can I sling a, a a bush can I you know and and basically the walls like you know it's probably like 80 uh you know 75 80 degrees so it's it, you know it's a slab but it's it's reasonably steep and there's nothing anywhere except for these bushels of grass that are hanging on to this quite steep wall with this kind of thick layer of like sediment. Um, and so it's just, you know, the, 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 the gradient is just low enough that these, these plants can just hang onto the wall. And so I took a big step out to my left and just stepped onto these like, you know, vertical hanging pieces of grass essentially, and kind of like, you know, leaned my back up against the wall, dug my heels in, and there was a very shallow, sort of um, lump <laughs> next to me that wouldn't even qualify as a horn but there was a lump and so I took a sling and I dropped it over the lump 
just clipped it directly to my harness and then just told my partner to start climbing. It didn't say anything else because I knew, you know, it was like any fall, her fall, my fall, anything, we would both be dead um, without a doubt. And we're in like a deeply remote part of Kenya, you know, um, <laughs> and yeah. And so that, that those moments, and it's really interesting because that moment where when I realized that I had no, the, the fear really came before I even decided what my option was. The fear came when I was realizing there was no good option. Um, and that was quite a, it was a really sickening fear because it's when you realize, ah, like I, I made these decisions and now I, my life is at risk, but so is this other person who I, you know, convinced to join me on this adventure. Um, and then as soon as, you know, I realized what my only option was, was I, you know, you just kind of click into the fear doesn't really go away, but somehow you, you sort of like pull yourself together and you just start doing things because there's nothing else to do. It's the very much that the flow state that's inspired by like, you know, extreme consequences. And uh, yeah. And anyway, she, she, you know, she climbed and I was just praying, praying, praying that she would not slip. Um, cause I didn't tell her, I didn't want to tell her what the situation was because I knew that that would probably make it worse. Uh, although in some ways I'm, you know, uh, maybe I should have trusted her and, but as she, at, once she got within eyesight and in earshot, I, I basically told her, I was like, look, there's no anchor. <laughs> We're like on this, you know, this epic slab and, and, and I'm just balancing on some bushes here and there's no anchor. So you can't fall. And, and it was amazing because what happened was she clicked into the same state, you know, because it was, you know, the, the, she was a little bit more in her comfort zone because she was at least like following me, right? So that if there was a rope there, it felt like, you know, she was used to that and she just clicked into that same state. She didn't really say anything. She just climbed through it. She got up to where I was standing. She like took a stance and I just started climbing without even being on belay because there was nothing, there was no reason for her to put me on. And so I'm so soloing up this face. And then I finally get a piece in like 25 feet above her and she puts me on belay and like, <laughs> and it was like a tri cam. It was like, not like an epic cam. It was like kind of slotted into a little slot, but, but even that was just like this wash of relief, you know, <laughs> like, okay. You know, theoretically, theoretically, uh, you know, this would catch me. Um, and that also meant that therefore she was safe. So um, yeah, I think that's probably the, the, most uncomfortable fear I've ever experienced on a climb. That's a wild story. I, yeah, I, I, I felt like, yeah, I felt a contact high, a contact fear of the emotion you would have been feeling just listening yeah. to that. Um, I still do now sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, I, I can definitely relate to that. I, um, what was the, um, so like that sounded like the hairiest part. Was there like a a trail down the other side? Like were were you out of the woods from there more or less? Yeah, mostly because it, it it evened off. Um, the 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 gradient got much less much less aggressive. Um, and so it just felt there still wasn't a lot of pro, but it wasn't as it wasn't as exposed. Um. um yeah, and then but then but then it was very cool because the last section of that climb is you drop off into this kind of like jungle gully that feels quite prehistoric. Even like the plants and the everything just like feels like you're in this kind of like, you know, um, Jurassic forest. Um, and then you follow these series of tight chimneys all the way to the top, like three more pitches. Um, and so of course that's a, the totally opposite form of climbing where you're like very secure, you know, and you're very like you're almost like embedded into the heart of the mountain. 
Um, and so that, and so it was interesting the decline itself was this kind of journey through those experiences and then getting to the top and you can walk off the back. And then what I'm curious, uh, what, uh, what were, what did the weeks after that look like or the next adventure? Was there like key lessons that you learn in terms of like the, um, the beta you get before doing an adventure or, or the gear that you bring or the decisions that you make as a result? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was definitely a, um, a learning of, you know, if you, if you don't know what you're expecting and, and you think it's a possibility that it could be at your edge, you probably don't, you probably w want to be with someone who is of a similar or greater skill level than you. Um, so that, so that you can push yourself and so that, and so that it can feel like this, you know, a kind of a more wholesome risk, um, than, getting somebody else into that situation yeah yeah that's a good call out of, of like of knowing how um like the um like if you're if you're the lead you have to be that much more dialed like it's mm -hmm. um you, you have to 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 be able to handle that many more contingencies you know yeah yeah, yeah. and that's what's cool about you know guides and i you know i I sort of like dabble in guiding. I don't do it in my full-time way. You know, that would be, I think, considered professional in, in the States or Canada, but, but I've, I've done it enough in my life that like, I, I, I enjoy, I, I enjoy the experience and I enjoy the culture. Cause it is, it is a culture of, especially like the kind of the, the, you know, the AMGA, the American Mountain Guide Association, that culture is so skillful, you know, and it's all about just really dialing and yet at the same time being able to like be so dialed that you could kind of do really epic things with people um and even push yourself and things like you know like i've climbed with a lot of guides where you knew climb so it's definitely like physically challenging for them they're working for it but you know they know their edge so well and they can get right up to it you know and still be have enough variables under control you know that they can give you that experience yeah, that's kind of like my, my aspirations is um, like, um, yeah, I really want to like continue to like push my edge and do epic shit. But it's, it's more like, um, I, I know I'm going to spend so much time in the outdoors that I'm, I'm bound to get unlucky multiple times. And so it's right. like being dialed enough that I can afford to be unlucky multiple times. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, although, I mean, the trouble with it is like, <laughs> you know, with accidents in the mountains is no matter how dialed you are, if you have an accident, it's probably relatively serious, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's like yeah, making no a mistake can hurt. <laughs> yeah, no matter how dialed you are, there's still a, a surrender element to it. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, how, how would you, you, um, integrate like those um like the, the the most like harrowing incidents in the mountains like that one you just shared with um so some of like the 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 prime peaks dates that you've experienced like uh, my intuitive sense is that they they all play together but how do you reconcile some of the the, the scariest moments with some of the most mm -hmm. beautiful ones like how they allow each other to happen. Hmm. 
what comes to mind interestingly is the the parallel between mountain experiences and and psychedelic experiences which you brought up earlier um in that with both i've had you know you have peak experiences that are you know there's an element of surrender and you and you really let go and it goes really well you know and you just have a totally wild profound revelatory experience um you know i've had those both in the mountains and using different kinds of um you know, medicines, <laughs> uh, and, but also you have this experience where you're, you're way up, you're really elevated, you're, you know, everything that's really, the risk is escalated that you're, you're, you're experienced and then something goes wrong and then things spiral out of control really quickly. And it's really scary, you know, and you, and you come out and you survive it. And there's a, there's a lot to be learned about just sort of just how do you release into those experiences too, um, and have them. But I definitely, tend after those experiences, I tend to have like a, I have to do some healing. And, and part of it is like, you, 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 re, you remember that like, yeah, we are accepting our own death, but life is precious, you know? And like, I don't, I like, I don't, I don't, I would actually rather keep on living right now. Um, and even, even with, you know, even with drugs, you're like, I, I would actually rather, I quite, you know, being sober is really important. And it's like a wonderful this wonderful equilibrium that we get to exist in all the time. And that's like really important to cultivate that. And uh, so I definitely go through these phases where I, I kind of, I kind of like get scared off of, you know, it for a while climbing, for example, after I've had, uh, after that experience I mentioned, I had another experience where I took a pretty epic fall, like in North Carolina at one point, like a proper 60 foot, 70, 80 foot fall, like kind of sliding down, sliding down a slick, um slab as well and that one too it like scared me off it for a while and i had to kind of learn to deal with my fear all over again and and deal with my ego all over again and but then what's been so cool is like learn to love the sport again every time that happens it kind of breaks it and then you like start putting it back together and you're like wow it's an even it's an even deeper more nuanced container for me um yeah so i think that's i think that's kind of the relationship between the two of them for me mm. How would you answer that question? I honestly don't. I honestly don't know. I, I feel like it's um, like the the outdoors is as like a testing ground, um, and and that in order to reach those peak states where everything fits together and everything is beautiful and makes sense, like you you've first got to be tested at all the other edges first to get there you know that's what comes to mind i yeah, don't know I mean, if that makes any sense what it, what it brings me around to is well tested all the other edges i i think the way i hear that is sort of well I don't know, can you can you explain what you mean by that a little bit i guess i almost see it as like initiatory like you have to be like initiated like through some hardship in order to reach like that peak state on the other side and like in the same way that like challenges bring wisdom and and when you make it past that like really challenging moment after a certain amount of time you can look back on that and be like I actually am grateful for that. Um, 
like you can spend time outdoors and and see it as like a powerful teacher and a, a bringer of wisdom and that kind of the more experience you have the richer those peak states are yeah and it does it's, it, it does make me think of what you said earlier about um having an ecosystem of practices is that right yeah ecology of practices an ecology of practices you know in in that i i think they're again as much as you i think you know i think there is such a thing as diminishing returns if you don't cultivate a really diverse ecosystem where you are because i think you know again if you go far enough down any path you might start mistaking that path for you know the way the 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 thing to do and then suddenly you, you you're identified and really attached to that and then that can be its own hard journey versus if you know again if that thing breaks enough for you you can develop a really holistic re relationship with it where you can continue to you know delve its you know it's kind of its marvels for your whole life but at the same time you start to I, what i have found is i think having spent enough time on a few certain skill sets that you you know you begin to learn some of these universal patterns of like how to pay attention to something how to experience something how to learn from something and 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 that things are sort of endlessly interesting and so all of a sudden everything you've learned about life through this one thing you turn to this other thing in your life and you're like oh wow like this is really exciting in a way that i never thought was before when i was so obsessed you know when i was so obsessed with rock climbing i i you know someone would have been said let's go uh whitewater rafting or something like that and i'd be like ah you know that's for you like but i think climbing's better you know but that was just because like that i had developed enough skill in that thing where i was having these experiences rather than realizing if i paid attention to anything in my life whether it was one of these you know these activities or these practices and eventually you know and eventually it leads you to meditation i think because you you begin to realize that it is perfectly interesting just to watch your consciousness <laughs> yeah. you know um and then, and then you can develop skill in how you do that you know with these practices and, and how you navigate these you know all of these moving currents of your mind and your experience and 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 the lessons learned in climbing are perfectly relevant in that space as well and in that modality as you put it yeah yeah that's very well said I think it's a good place to to end it. I, I really like we've we've danced around exploring exactly what um, that like ecology of practice looks like, or what that well towards wisdom looks like, and and we we've spoken about how fear and 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 risk and harrowing experiences play into that. I'm curious if there's any other elements you feel like unexplored within this equation that would kind of lead to a another another conversation. No, I mean, I think we, we yeah, we, because the thing is, like, you know, like we just said, any, any of these things could be explored kind of infinitely. Any of these threads could be followed, you know, uh, into ever more interesting places, but you kind of, you, you know, you get it in the package as you get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about I, hey, how about I finish by reading that? that Please. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's finish with that. Yeah. Uh, so this is just something I wrote on my on my Instagram, which I kind of use as a I just use it as sort of a practice, a space to like make sure I'm cultivating my practice of writing and sharing and 
you know, getting some kind of feedback. And um, so the edge of belief, I remember saying, even when I was a practicing Christian that nature is my church. I wasn't yet grasping at other traditions, less distant from the earth than my own. I was still so deeply steeped in the orthodoxy of my particular Christianity that I meant very earnestly that in nature I felt a more expansive, non-doctrinal, incarnated sense of spirit than I ever did in the belief and therefore language of evangelicalism. I think this sense of holy space first heard in the warm, austere wind of the Loita Hills, which is where I grew up, um, and then encountered in wild places from Patagonia to Tanzania to Tennessee, provided an escape hatch from the self-collapsing tendencies of religion. And then later, my equally dualistic and vicious atheism. It felt like freedom from the constant cycle of shame and repentance and determination to fix myself. Nature was unnarrated, without aim. Who's ever heard of a flower feeling guilty? Like a fig tree out of stone, an understanding of the world as fundamentally unified, ineffably alive, grew slowly, tenaciously, and without presumption out of my spiritual bedrock. These days I feel less that I've left any part of myself behind than that it has all been subsumed, regenerated into the whole. But it still feels a seismic shift in spiritual identity with echoing ramifications. I once thought myself a poor, wear-faring stranger traveling through this world below, but that separation was an illusion. I am simply an entity moving through itself, seeing itself, loving itself. In this knowledge, there is no past self to condemn, nor a future self to instruct. There is just the unfolding, the always beginning again of creation, where I am learning to forgive myself a little faster, a little more freely. And the wild world, which is to say the world uncolonized by human society, provides a powerful curriculum. When none of our human scripts are at work, we can with practice recognize the personhood of the birds, the insects, the trees, the great creatures. They move, love, air, and die without any great fuss. It's good to be back in church. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that like perfectly like captures like that element of connection that comes when you spend that time outdoors. And I think it's interesting. I I, I like that we we ended on that note because you know as we were saying before this conversation that language that I'm writing in is, is quite, it's quite spiritual and it's, you know, it's a little out there in some ways, but it has, you know, evolved entirely through these practices we've been talking about. Um, you know, that eventually at first it's, you know, climbing and then eventually it's everything, <laughs> which is a cool journey. Thank you for listening. In the show notes, you can find a link to the post that James just read at the end there, as well as a link to the article that he referenced in Climbing Magazine that's titled The Samburu Climbers of Kenya Find a New Way of Life on the Stone. James is available via Instagram through that post, or also a website which I'll link called The Kalele Project. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this show by hitting follow on Spotify, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast that you use. I'm available on Instagram if you want to reach out or give feedback. But thanks again for listening and and look out for another episode uh, 
every second Tuesday.